All right, we begin this morning here in Hebrews chapter 8. And of course, I mean, it's almost strange to say it, but it's true. We're just following in a logical progression through the book of Hebrews 5, 6, 7, 8, dealing with these great themes of Jesus being our high priest and a priest according to a certain order of priesthood that's called the priesthood of Melchizedek and all that that means for us. And now we get into the what I think is just one of the juicy portions of the book of Hebrews chapter 8, where he talks about what these ideas about Jesus's priesthood, how they apply very practically to our life. Look at it right here, Hebrews chapter 8, starting at verse 1, where he says, Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. Don't you just love that beginning in verse 1? Now this is the point. We've talked about all these theoretical things. We plumbed into the depths of Melchizedek. We've talked about the concept of priesthood and the priesthood according to Aaron and the priesthood according to Melchizedek. And we talked about Jesus and his qualification, his nature according to us. We all believe it now. Yes, Jesus, you're qualified. You're appointed there to be my high priest. So what? Well, here it is right now. And it's a powerful thing that he says. He says, we have a high priest And he's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty. Now, at the time this was written, there was still a functioning priesthood at an operating temple in Jerusalem. And you can just imagine somebody who might be in the social circle of one of these Christians from a Jewish background. You can just imagine somebody from a Jewish background just saying to them, well, you guys don't have a high priest. Look at our high priest. He serves at the temple there in Jerusalem. Where's your high priest? And now the writer of Hebrews wants to say, oh, no, you have a high priest. He is in a much better place than an earthly temple. He's seated at the right hand of God, the Father in heaven, and he serves us. And fulfills that role as our high priest from there. Friends, did you see that phrase in verse 1? Who is seated at the right hand of the throne. He's seated in heaven. This is wonderful, first of all, because first of all, where he is? He's in heaven. And he's your high priest serving you from heaven. That's a wonderful thing. You know, you've heard the phrase that it's an advantage to have friends in high places. Well, this is your friend in the highest place, isn't it? But not only that, not only is in heaven, but notice his posture. He, he's not, so to speak, kneeling. He's not, so to speak, standing. What's the posture as it's noted there? Seated. That's a pretty powerful thing because the writer of the Hebrews is going to later on explain for us, but I'll mention it now. That seated posture is very important because if you want to think about the tabernacle that was mentioned to in the Old Testament, now previous to our study in the book of Hebrews, we went through the book of Exodus together and we saw how God commanded them to build a tabernacle and he told them to build the frame and he told them to build the coverings and he told them to build different furnishings and implements for the service of the tabernacle way back in the Exodus wanderings let me tell you something about that tabernacle it had all kinds of features all kinds of furnishings but what it did not have was it didn't have any chairs it didn't have any benches you know why because god never wanted those priests to sit down and you don't want to know why he never wanted them to sit down because their work was never finished have you ever worked the kind of job where if you're sitting down the boss thinks you're not doing any work I've worked those kind of jobs. The boss can instantly tell who's not doing the work. They're sitting down. 
That's how a little bit how it was with the priesthood in ancient Israel. They always had to be working. They always had to be sacrificing because there was no sacrifice that was ever enough. There was no sacrifice that ever provided a perfect atonement. And then what does Jesus do? Jesus comes as our perfect high priest and he offers a sacrifice so perfect that it never has to be repeated. And God, the father says to God, the son, sit down. Your work is finished. There he is seated at the right hand. And then notice what it says there in verse two. He's a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle. In other words, yes, there was a tabernacle described in the Old Testament, but that tabernacle just simply was a pattern of the real throne of God that exists in heaven where God dwells. And it's a very exciting thing to think that there was an original made by God that exists there in the heaven. Matter of fact, the tabernacle of Moses was a copy of the original and it was made by man. Instead, the one made by God in heavens was made without human hands. And so now verse three, he continues on the same thought where he says this for every high priest is appointed to offer both the gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it's necessary that this one also have something to offer. In other words, Jesus wasn't a high priest who brought a bull or a goat or, or, or something else to offer. No. What did he bring? He brought the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus himself came. And we had this curious thing that I mentioned last week, that in this whole imagery that the writer of the Hebrews brings to us, we have this wonderful thing of how Jesus is both the priest offering the sacrifice, but at the same time, he is the sacrifice himself. And he didn't come empty-handed, but rather brought a sacrifice for the atonement of sins. It was necessary that he does that. But notice it when he brought the sacrifice, look at where the atonement was truly offered. Verse four, for if he were on earth, he would not be a priest since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle for he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain." Now, notice this. Think about Jesus in the days of his earthly ministry. He walks to Jerusalem and he comes to the priest and he walks up those steps and he's there in the temple mountain. There's the priest. And he says, well, here, I'm the high priest. I've come to offer sacrifice. What would the priest tell him? They'd say, no, you can't do that. You're of the tribe of Judah. You're not of the tribe of Levi. You're of the family of David. You're not of the family of Aaron. You're not allowed to come and offer a sacrifice at our very temple. But what does the writer Hebrew says? No, no, no. Jesus didn't come to the temple that was made with hands. Jesus came and offered that perfect atonement before the throne of God in heaven. Now, friends, I don't believe this was done in a literal way in this sense. I don't believe that Jesus carried up a bowl of his own blood. And I'm sorry for speaking so almost grotesquely, but I just want this image to be clear in our minds. It's not as if he had to offer a literal sprinkling of his own blood in heaven. No, but it was the power of the life that he laid down on the cross. And that sacrifice in all of its perfection was presented, I should say, before God the Father in heaven. And it was received as a perfect sacrifice to satisfy the guilt and the shame that our sin deserved. But notice this. Verse 5 makes this point, and it's a very important point to make, that these things were a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. 
You see, Exodus chapter 25 tells us that Moses' tabernacle that was built on earth was made, and here's the verse, according to the pattern that existed in heaven. This was the pattern shown to Moses on the mountain. That's what God commanded in Exodus chapter 25, verse 40. Therefore, if the earthly is made according to a pattern, there must be in heaven an original that provides the pattern. And there is a throne room in heaven. And there is some kind of place where this sacrifice was presented before God the Father and was perfectly received. And I think this is very important for us to consider because the first century Jews took tremendous pride in their temple. And they did so for very good reasons. It was a spectacular building. If you think about the temple that existed in the days of Jesus, that existed at the time this was written, and the priestly service that operated there, the Jewish people at that time took tremendous pride in that magnificent building. They understood, oh, this is a great, great building, and everybody should see what a great God we serve and how it's focused on the greatness of this building. And you could see where the answer might come to a Christian in the first century. Where's your temple? Where's your high priest? Where's your sacrifice? And they say, I'll tell you exactly where our temple is. It's perfected in the heavens. I'll tell you exactly who our high priest is. It's Jesus himself, the Messiah. And I'll tell you exactly the sacrifice that he offered. And it's what he did on the cross for you and I. By the way, as great as that temple was and as magnificent as it was, I want to remind you something. The men who administrated that temple were corrupt and ungodly men. Now, what good is it if you have a magnificent structure, a beautiful cathedral, so to speak, but the ministry that goes on there is marked by the corruption of man? What good is that? And then again, you think of the same principle as it would apply to the greatness of what Jesus did on the cross. He himself being a perfect man, he offers so much a better sacrifice. That's exactly what he's clinging on to in verse six. Look at that with me. He says, But now he, meaning Jesus, but now Jesus has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. Friends, that old tabernacle, that old temple, it was all associated with a specific covenant that God made with his people. We call it the Mosaic covenant or the old covenant. It's the covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai. But now Jesus, because he's obtained a more excellent ministry, has established a better covenant. And he is, as it says in verse six, he is the mediator of a better covenant. Do you know how explicitly Jesus wanted to communicate this to us? Please, please remember this. You remember the scene on the night before Jesus died on the cross? Hours before Judas would betray him to the religious authorities. He had a Passover meal with his disciples, didn't he? And there they are seated in that customarily Jewish way. They're eating the Passover meal together. They're not as Leonardo da Vinci depicted it all on one side of a table looking out at the camera. There they are gathered together there in the meal for the last supper. And as Jesus does that in the rituals of the Passover meal, what did he do? He held up a cup of wine in front of him. And do you remember what he said to them? 
He said to something that would be so outrageous unless God and the Messiah himself said it specifically. You could never imagine Abraham saying this. You could never imagine Moses saying this. You could never imagine King David saying, but the Messiah, he's got the credentials to say this. He put a cup up in front of him and he said this. This is the new covenant in my blood. Wow. He said, guys, this is it. I am activating the new covenant. My death is going to set in motion this thing that was predicted for so many decades from the Old Testament. My death sets in motion the new covenant. And that's why verse six says that Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. Now you've got an old covenant. And you got a new covenant. Can I just tell you that this basically the point here of what we're looking at this morning. The new covenant's better. You say, okay, well, let's close our Bibles or turn off our iPhones or whatever it is and go our way. No, 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 no. Because here's the deal. Not only do you need to know that the new covenant is better theoretically, you need to know it in the way that you live as well. There are many, many followers of Jesus who love God. They love Jesus. They want to live a Christian life. But their mentality and their Christian living is trapped in an old covenant mentality. And they are not enjoying the blessings and the benefit of the new covenant. This cannot be you. You need to be a person who lives in the light and in the blessings of the new covenant. Because it's a better covenant that Jesus provides for us. Listen, God's work throughout the span of the ages. And by the way, I think we got a pretty good teaching series on this, on the archives of our website. Just look up the teaching series, God's plan of the ages. And in that, we sort of take a look at God's redemptive plan, highlighting the covenants. How God made a covenant with Abraham. That God made a covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai. That God made a covenant with King David. You have the Abrahamic covenant, the old covenant, the Davidic covenant. But it all culminates in the great covenant that God would establish by the Messiah himself. The new covenant. This covenant that all the others looked forward to. And it's a covenant. Look at there in verse 6 which is established on better promises, a better covenant on better promises. Now, what's so good about it? The writer of the Hebrews is very glad that you asked that question because he's beginning to begin to answer it in verse seven, where he says this, for if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. First of all, before we consider what's so great about the new covenant, which we will in just a moment, let's just consider that there's a problem with the old covenant. Now, I'm tempted and I'm going to resist the temptation to go into a long digression on the weaknesses of the old covenant because I think it's interesting and it's valuable. But let me just say this. You want to know what the problem with the old covenant is? It's me. If I were a a truly spiritually alive, transformed person, I could make it work under the old covenant. But here's the problem with the old covenant. It sets out God's standard for me beautifully. Can anybody come up with a better statement of God's standard for us than the Ten Commandments? No, it's all right there. There it is. That's that's a good summation of those covenants. Here it is. This is what you got to do. Do this and live. Here's the problem with the old covenant is it doesn't do anything to help me live it. It just puts out the standard, but it gives me no power to keep the standard. 
The new covenant is better because it does something that the old covenant does not. The new covenant comes along with genuine transforming power into our lives. And that's a remarkable change. Now look at it, starting at verse 8, verses 8 through 12. He's going to quote a passage from Jeremiah chapter 31. And in this passage from Jeremiah chapter 31, it's one of several wonderful Old Testament passages that speak to us about the nature and the glory of the new covenant. Because even back in the days before the new covenant was ever established, God announced that it would come. And it's some of those announcements that we find mainly in the books of Jeremiah and Ezekiel that God explains the glorious nature of this new covenant. So you ready? You ready to hear what's so great about the new covenant? Here we go. Beginning at verse eight. I'll read the whole thing and then we'll tear it apart step by step. Ready? Here we go. Verse eight. Because finding fault with them, he says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant. I disregarded them, says the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother saying, know the Lord for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. God said hundreds of years before the new covenant would be instituted that this would be the nature and the character of the new covenant. So let's just take a look at it piece by piece. I think this is an amazing passage beginning with verse eight, where he says, because finding fault with them. Whoa, whoa. Where's he finding fault? He's finding fault with the old covenant. In other words, God wouldn't have given us a new covenant unless there was a problem with the old. And do you know how it works in our modern day of marketing and sales and all the rest of it? Some of the most common words, if not these words, then the concept is always there, right? New and improved. Everything's new and improved, isn't it? And have you ever noticed, I don't know if you notice when you purchase something, you buy a new smartphone, you buy a new laundry detergent, and it says really big, new and improved. And then you get and you go, well, what's the big deal? It's pretty much the same. No, no, no. God doesn't work like that, does he? God never brings something new unless there was something to improve upon with the old. So the mere fact that he says, I'm going to make a new covenant establishes the fact that there was something wrong with the old one, that he found fault with the old covenant. So notice this verse eight, because finding fault with them, he says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. By the way, when Jeremiah said that it was still off in the future, we live on the other side of the new covenant. But Jeremiah lived on the front side of it. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. I love these words in verse eight. When I will make a new covenant, God says, I will make them a new covenant. Please note those words. I will make. God didn't say you and I are going to make together a new covenant. 
He didn't say we'll negotiate a new covenant. God didn't say I'll throw out the first offer on a new covenant and we'll come to a decision. The reason why I say this, I think there's a very important principle. And friends, I really want you to hear me at this point because I think it's an essential aspect having to do with the way our culture looks at faith and spirituality. The dominant thinking in our culture today is basically this. Each one of you make your own covenant with God and you do it based on the inclinations of your own heart. Well, what do you believe God to be? Well, that's what he is. How does God relate with you? Well, however you want him to. You just imagine in your own heart. And that's how God relates to you. The idea is this, is basically everybody makes their own covenant with God. And we just kind of negotiate according to the terms that pleases us. It's as if I come to God and I say, ooh, 10 commandments, God, that's kind of rough. I'll tell you what, how about these six commandments? How about that? And if God's a tough negotiator, he comes back and he goes, no, 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 eight commandments, these eight. You got to come up with these eight. And maybe we settle in the middle and we decide on seven commandments that I'll keep with the Lord. There are people who actually think not exactly that way. I put it in an exaggerated way because it sounds so foolish when I put it that way, right? But don't people actually think along those same lines? I'll cut my own deal with God and I'll do it according to my heart. I'll follow my heart. Friends, let me tell you, the Bible tells us very specifically that God has made a new covenant. And you know what he does with this new covenant? He puts it down on the table before us and he says, accept it or reject it. You're not going to negotiate this with me. Here's my offer of a new covenant. I bring it before you. You're either going to receive it in faith or you're going to reject it. But you're not going to negotiate it with me. You're not going to cut your own deal with me. No, he says, I will make a new covenant. Now, notice he says here, with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, it's true. The new covenant began with the people of Israel, but it didn't end there. And that's one of the glorious features of the new covenant that's explicitly mentioned in other places, especially in Ezekiel and in another passage of Jeremiah. So here in Jeremiah, he's talking about the house of Israel and the house of Judah. But that's not all it's for. It's for everybody. Even if you don't have a drop of Jewish blood within you, this new covenant is offered unto you. Now, what else do we know about it? Look at verse nine here. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt because they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord. In other words, look at that in verse nine. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers. This covenant's new. It's different. It's not just a rehash of the old covenant. Friends, the old covenant was all about your performance, your ability to keep the law, your rule keeping. The new covenant is much better. It is focused on what Jesus, the Messiah, has done for us and especially what he did for us on the cross. That's the great difference. So it's not according to that old covenant. Instead, as he said right there in verse 9, Because they did not continue in my covenant. I can't get away from this concept of picturing in my mind's eye the people of Israel, hundreds of thousands of people assembled together at the foot of Mount Sinai. And there's Mount Sinai rising up majestically from the desert floor. There it is. And what's Mount Sinai look like? It's a flame with fire. There's smoke billowing forth from it and there's thunder 
and there's lightning and there's an earthquake and the people are terrified. And in the midst of all that drama and terror, what does God do? God speaks to them from heaven and gives them the Ten Commandments. And the people are so blown away at hearing the voice of God, at feeling literally the earth shake under their feet, that they look out to God and they look to Moses and they say, Moses, we can't take this anymore. It's too awesome. It's too transcendent. Moses, tell God not to speak to us directly anymore. You go talk to him and tell us what he said. I'm tempted to think that if I ever had a spiritual experience like that, I'd never sin again. No, man, I saw it. It was real. I felt the earthquake. I smelled the fire. I heard the voice of God audibly. And I know it wasn't a delusion because hundreds of thousands of other people heard it, too. Man, I am never sinning again. Within 40 days, they were dancing around a golden calf saying, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. Friends, the old covenant gave no power to keep the covenant, but the new covenant does. And this is what he gets into, the great benefits of it. Look at it here, starting at verse 10. He says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. Here it is. Here's the benefits of the new covenant. He says, I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. That's benefit number one. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. The law will not just be an external thing on a tablet of stone or on a page. I'm going to put it on your heart. I'm going to transform your heart so that you have a willingness to obey me that you didn't have before. I'm going to transform you from the inside out. I'm going to make you... Born again? Yes. I'm going to have an inner transformation of you. And part of that transformation is I'm going to write my law on your heart so that there's a new principle, a new reason for obedience. Why do I obey God? Not because there's some heavy law outside of me that I'm afraid of being judged by, but because God lives in my heart and I love him and I want to please him. That's a completely different thing, isn't it? Friends, I know. I know That the laws of the state of California say that I should not drive faster than 65 miles an hour on the freeway that runs through Santa Barbara. I know that. It's posted and I know the law. Now, knowing the law, do you think that that would keep me going the right speed all the time? But I tell you, this morning on my way here, when I saw that highway patrolman with the radar gun, for some reason, the presence of that highway patrolman was far more persuasive to me than all the laws that were written down on the book. A person right there is much more effective than laws on a page in getting me to obey and you as well. That's why we need Jesus Christ to live in our hearts. That's why we need that inner transformation. So that's the one thing, the inner transformation of his law written on our hearts. Secondly, there's a new relationship. Did you see it there in verse 10? I ended in the middle of verse 10. He says, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother saying, know the Lord for all shall know me, even the least of them to the greatest of them in this new covenant community. I don't have to go to somebody else to in the new covenant community. Say, do you know the Lord? They go, well, of course I know the Lord. I'm part of the new covenant. I have a special and a powerful and a new relationship with God because I am a part of this new covenant community. 
And this is part of the new covenant that he promises to me. Not only will there be an inner transformation and the law written on my heart, but also I'll have a new and a special relationship with God. So that for me, and I know this is a cliche phrase, but it's a pretty good cliche phrase. It's no longer about religion. Now it's about relationship. Because I have this relationship. I have a relationship with God that I couldn't have had under the old covenant. No, it's now mine under the new covenant. That's the second thing. And then the third feature, did you see it there in verse 12? For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. There is a forgiveness and a putting away, a cleansing of sin that is ours under the new covenant that does not belong to somebody under the old covenant. Isn't that powerful? If you're like me, there is sin that you wish could never be remembered. That it would simply be blotted out from remembrance. And maybe sometimes the devil comes alongside you and whispers in your ear. Remember that? Remember that? Remember that? If you're part of this new covenant, you can come to God and say, God, do you remember when I did that? And what would God say? No. No, it's not that God's memory is failing like mine sometimes is. No, it's that God has chosen not to remember that sin. Why? Because it is covered under the blood of Jesus. And his child has confessed and repented and yielded it to the saving work of Jesus. And it's gone. It's like it's remembered no more. Don't you want that? Don't you want to receive that? All right, look right here. Verse 13. In that he says a new covenant, he's made the first obsolete. Now what's becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. In other words, because a new covenant has been established, we should let the old covenant vanish away. Not in what we learn by it, not by how it instructs us. No, no, there's things to learn from the old covenant. But it should not be the measure of our relationship with God. No, we were made to relate to God on the basis of a new covenant. So. Why would you ever hang on to an old covenant? Oh, I know. I want to hang on to an old covenant because, and if you think about those features of the new covenant that I just mentioned before, you think about, I want to hold on to an old covenant because I want to be ruled by an external law instead of a transformed heart. Oh, no, I, I want to cling to the old covenant because I don't want such a close relationship with God. I'd rather keep the distance of religion rather than relationship, please. Well, why would I want the old covenant? Oh, because I really want to remember and cling to my sinful past. You put it in those terms as, are you crazy? My friends, why? Why would you live another day longer thinking and rooted in an old covenant? Now, I want you to think about this. If you are part of the new covenant, those three things belong to you by birthright. By birthright, you should have a transformed heart. By birthright, you should have a special relationship with God. By birthright, you should have an awareness of the forgiveness of sins. And I want you to be utterly honest with yourself right now. You don't have to be honest with me. Who cares about you being honest with me? Be honest before God and with yourself. In the quietness of your own soul right now, I want you to ask, do I have those three things? 
Is my heart transformed? Do I have special relationship with God? Do I really have that cleansing of sin? Those three things together. That's what God longs to give you. Now, what if you look at your own heart and say, I don't have those things. I want them. Anybody would want them. Let me suggest there's two paths here for you to follow. If you don't have those things, number one, honestly, maybe you've never really received this new covenant relationship with God. Maybe. Maybe you go to church. Of course you go to church. You're here this morning. But, but maybe you, 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 you're a churchgoer, but you haven't really been a new covenant believer. If that's the case, why give it one day longer? Come to God and say, no, this, I want this. This seems like a really good deal. I want this. Thank you for bringing me to a new covenant. I want to receive it right now. That's the one aspect. But here's the other aspect. And I think that in a congregation such as ours, the second aspect is far more common. Here it is. You are part of the new covenant. You are. You've put your trust in Jesus. You know something of these benefits. But to be honest, right here, right now, it feels very distant from your life. Right here, right now, that transformation doesn't seem real. Right here, right now, that real relationship with God seems very distant. Right here, right now, your sinful past hangs over you like a disgusting cloud over your head and over your soul. Then what are you to do? I want you to get angry. I'm not angry at God. It's not his fault. How about this? Angry at the world, angry at the flesh, angry at the devil, because these things are your birthright according to the new covenant. And God says they're for you. If you're not enjoying them, you're getting ripped off. Is there any reason for somebody who's genuinely connected to God by the new covenant to not enjoy these things? This is part of the deal that he promised. And I believe that somebody can be distracted, diverted, sucked into unbelief or doubt or fear of such a degree that these things that God has established for them in the new covenant are not real at the moment in their life. If that's you, I want you to say right now in your heart before God, I'm not taking this anymore. You promised that you would remember my sins no more. I want that, Lord. I'm coming to you the way you said I can, and I'm going to believe that I have it. You promise this intimate relationship with you. Lord, that's my birthright as somebody in the new covenant. I'm not going to be happy. I'm not going to be sad until I am living that. Lord, you said that there'd be an inner transformation. And Lord, I know something of what that's like, but I want it real in my life now. I want you to get a little dissatisfied and say, no, God, it's going to be so you helping me in my life. Father, I pray that you would raise up in the hearts of everybody here. A holy dissatisfaction if they're not enjoying all three aspects of the new covenant. And a restlessness that would just say, no. I'm not going to rest until I'm enjoying all these three aspects. It all has to be real in my life because all of it is the property of your people under the new covenant. Lord, would you do that?
would you move among us to live as a true new covenant community? Lord, I can't think of anything more powerful in this place where we live to have a community of people who really are marked by those three things. So, Lord, just do it. And bring us to the place where we live in the glory and the goodness of a better covenant founded on better promises by our great high priest. We love you for it, Lord. We bring ourselves before you now. In Jesus' name, amen.